Let's uh, let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you again for your word. And thank you, Lord, that we can come to it and listen and seek to understand. And I pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to hear your word as those who long to submit to it. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see glorious things about who you are and what you're like in your word. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 18. Everybody can hear me okay? Good in the back. Before we read our passage, we're going to be at verses 5 through 14. But before we read that, I just want to mention a few things about Matthew 18 as a whole. Um, you've heard us mention many times as we've come through the Gospel of Matthew together that there are five discourses from Jesus. There's five different teaching blocks. And each one of those teaching blocks ends with a phrase like, when he had finished these sayings or when he had finished this teaching. Well, we had that at the end in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings. So that tips us off. That tips us off that Matthew 18 is another one of these teaching blocks. In fact, it's the fourth teaching block or discourse of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. So I want us to think about Matthew 18 as a whole for just a moment. Like I said, before we read our passage. Um, how did this teaching block get started? How did, how did this, uh, when Jesus you know, breaks off into this fourth discourse, how, how did it get started? Well, you remember chapter 18, verse 1, it started with some, some uh, inner squabbling amongst the disciples, right? This prideful competition about who's the greatest. And in the middle of that squabbling, that internal amongst the disciples, um, prideful competition, that sort of thing going on. In the middle of that, out of that, flowing out of that, Jesus begins this fourth discourse. And so I want us to think about what Matthew 18 or what this fourth teaching block is really all about. And if I had to summarize it for you, this fourth teaching block... It's about internal relationships within the church and how sin can affect those relationships. So Matthew 18 is about internal relationships in the church and how sin can affect those relationships. In fact, as people over the, you know, over the years have named these five discourses, they typically name this one the church discourse. Matthew 18 is the church, the church discourse. Uh, some different commentaries I read. They titled Matthew 18 like this. R.T. France said he titled it uh, Living Together as Disciples, a Discourse on Relationships. That's why he thinks about Matthew 18. Uh, Leon Morris called this the life, uh, life in the Messianic community so within the church. Another commentator called this re- Matthew 18 Relationships in the Community. So this discourse is about the church. Relationships within the church and how sin can affect relationships within the church. So let me try to give you just a quick 
outline of all of Matthew 18, just sort of what's here. And then from there, we'll dig into our passage. Now, we've got in verse 1 what started it, right? This inner squabbling. And then in verse 2 through 4, Jesus tells us who's in the church, who are a part of his people. Remember that? He pulls a little child to him. He pulls a little child to him. He says, and, and he, yeah, he's, this, this is the visual aid, the child. And he says, unless you are turned, unless you turn, unless you be converted and become like little children, talking about this humble dependence on God, throwing off of self-righteousness, humble dependence on God like a child. He says, unless you become like this child, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is actually the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this is who's, who is a part of his people. Those who are converted become like children. That's verse 2 through 4. Now, that theme, now, now you know you need to be awake to this, it's going to come up a lot. That theme is going to come up throughout the rest of Matthew 18. So look at our next verse. We're going to read it in a minute, but look at our next verse. Whoever receives one such child. Now we're talking about child as in an age thing here, or child as in children of God. Well, look at the next phrase. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones, children, little ones, look at the next phrase, who believe in me. So he pulls in a child, says, my people are those that are childlike. They are converted and become like children. And then the rest of the passage, when it says children or little ones, are talking about those who believe in Christ. So throughout this passage... Throughout this passage, believers are called children or called little ones. So store that away. That's going to be important as we keep working through this passage. But all that being said, verse 2 through 4 is the church is a group of little ones. There's no great ones in the kingdom of God, at least not great in the way the world thinks about greatness. The, the church is full of little ones. And then verse 5 through 7 he says, you need to receive such little ones. And again, we're about to read it. He says, you need to receive such little ones and not cause them to stumble. Don't cause them to, to be tripped up. Okay, that's the next warning. Internal relationships within the church. And then verse 8, through the rest of the passage, you get this exhortation about how sin can mess up these relationships within the church. Verse 8 and 9, you've got this personal how you should deal with sin. If your hand caused you sin, cut it off, throw it away. In verses 10 through 14, you got sheep, sheep that stray away from the flock. And we ought to be willing to leave the 99 to go after the one. That's what Christ is like. To go after the straying sheep. Verse 15 through 20, a very, a very well-known passage about church discipline. Second mention of the ecclesia or the church. And then lastly, verse 21 through 35, last section of the teaching is talking about forgiving one another. Peter asked that question, how many times should I forgive my brother and Jesus answers him and gives him a parable about forgiving one another. So all in all, this passage is about relationships within the church. You got church discipline. You got forgiveness. You got straying ones. You got how sin can mess this up. It's about this is the church discourse. OK, now let's read our portion of it in verse five through 14. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones 
who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the, by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven there are angels. Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And there's a lot of wonderful things in this passage of Scripture. And I want to try to highlight three. A lot of wonderful things in this passage, but I want to try to highlight three. Number one is this. I want you to notice God's love for His people in this passage. I want you to notice God's love for His church. Now you can really see God's love for His people, God's love for His church in a lot of different ways. But, but in this first, in this first uh, thing we're highlighting here, God's love for His people, I want you to see four different ways we see God's love being shown here. Number one, just the affectionate way that He talks about them. Did you hear that repetition? He talks about his people as his children. And he uses this affectionate language. My little ones. <laughs> little ones. These, these little ones who believe in me. That's affectionate language coming from our Savior and from our God. Can you imagine that? This, this is a scripture. We've talked about this the last few weeks. What manner of love that the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God? That we should be called little ones? I mean, does that hit you that you are a rebel that deserve God's wrath? That's what you are. That's what I am. And yet, through the blood of Jesus Christ, you're brought into His family. And can you imagine God looking at you and saying, that's my, my little one, my child, my son, my daughter. So there's love just in the affectionate language. And I, I want you to feel that. That God would look at you that deserve wrath but is saved by the blood of Christ. And he would look at you and say, little one, this little one who believes in me. Now, second way you can see God's love is the serious threat that he gives to those that would cause his little ones to stumble. So does God love his little ones? Oh man, yeah, he does. You, I mean, think about the threat that's given here. You cause my little one to sin? You cause my little one to stumble? It'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and drowned in the sea. That's a threat of love. That's a, that's a husband that loves his wife. You lay one finger on her. It's a threat. Or father that loves his daughter. You better not come near her. You cause my little one to stumble. And there's this, 
This threat of love here. Now let's dig into that. That's in verse 5 through 7. And let's dig into that just a little bit. Now every time you see the word sin here or temptation, you might have a little note in your Bible. Because that's literally the word for causing someone to stumble, to trip, or putting out a stumbling block. The idea of a stumbling block is a common thing in our language. And it's a common thing in our language because of this passage. So every time you see that, so look at it in verse verse six. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that's the verb to cause them to stumble, to trip them up. And look down at verse seven. Woe to the world because of temptations to sin. That's the noun. That's the stumbling. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. For it is necessary that temptations or stumbling blocks come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation or stumbling block comes. So every time you see temptation sin, you should be thinking stumbling block. There, this is the idea of tripping up. St- making one of his little ones stumble. Making them trip. Putting a stumbling block in front of them. That's the language in this passage. And so the Christian life... It's being pictured here as a journey that we're on, as a, as a path that we're walking down, or as a race that we're running. And, and as God's little ones, as God's children walk this path, that's a Christian life, as they travel on this journey, this journey, as they run this race, what does God think about those that would put a stumbling block in place to trip them up. What does God think about that? Verse 6 says, man, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the sea. Notice it does not threaten them with drowning. It threatens them with something worse than drowning. Drowning would be a cakewalk for you compared to what, what is due you if you make one of my little ones stumble. Man, that's a threat of love. That's threatening the ones that are going to trip up the ones that he loves, his believers, his children. love. Now verse 7, we need to continue there and understand verse 7 because verse 7 gives a double woe. Woe. A a double woe for this same kind of thing. Look at it in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Now, quick side note. The world there is is interpreted at at least two different ways in our Bible. So you go to 1 John 3.15 and it says, do not love the world. It's talking about the systems of this world, right? Don't love the world. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. Same Greek word, cosmos, same Greek word there. And, and don't love the world. And yet God so loved the world, talking about the people there. And the question is, what, what's it referring to here? Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Now, if it's talking about the system of, of everything, It would be saying that the temptations to sin or the stumbling blocks, the source of that is the world and woe to the world. But I don't believe that's what it's saying here. Rather, it's talking about the people. Woe to the world. There's grief and woe to the world. Why? Because of these stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks are everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's stumbling blocks to get you off of this path, off of this journey, to lead you to hell. Woe to the world. Woe to the people in the world. For all of these stumbling blocks. 
And yet, as you read in verse 7, he says, but it's necessary. It's necessary that these stumbling blocks would be here. That's God's sovereignty. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God's sovereign even over those that would cause others to stumble. God's sovereign even over stumbling blocks. It's necessary that the temptations would be there. Because our God is sovereign. And yet we see human responsibility. Because the next phrase says, But woe to the man through whom the temptation comes. Woe to the man that puts out these stumbling blocks. And then I would just add because of the context, the context, especially when you do it to his little ones. Especially. It'd be better for you to be drowned than to make one of his little ones stumble. So this is God's love for his people. So you got, number one, the affectionate language that he uses toward them. Number two, this threat of love. And, and number three, look at verse 10. God's love for his people. He sends his angels to care for them. <laughs> look at it right here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, I love that. I want you to think about that contrast that's given. Here you are despising this little one. And at the same time, the father is sending angels of his presence to protect them and guard them and serve them. You're despising them. I don't mean you personally. I'll take you personally. But somebody's despising these little ones. And here's God taking the, 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 the best of his presence, the best guard, the care, and he's sending angels to care for them. They're literally called their angels. Did you see that? Don't despise these little ones because they're angels, as if they own them or something. Their angels always see, always stand before the face of my Father who is in heaven. And that's a beautiful thing, man. He, he loves his little ones. He sends angels to care for them. Now, some people have taken this passage as a, as a, a sort of a, a text to prove the doctrine of guardian angels, right? That every believer has a guardian angel. And that would be loving, be nice. I don't think you can go that far, but, it, but that doesn't minimize it because I want you to just think about this for a moment. Think about angels. In the scriptures, they're called invisible spirits. And the scripture tells us there are innumerable angels, invisible spirits that probably outnumber humans on the planet, right? So invisible spirits, angels, servants of God, they're more powerful than you could ever imagine. You read that in the scripture, powerful, invisible, innumerable angels. And what do they do? What does God send them to do? To serve his people, to serve his little ones. Hebrews 1.14, it says, are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister, to serve those who will inherit salvation? Man, God loves His people. <laughs> he loves His little one. His little ones. Now, fourth, the fourth way we see His love for His people is in verse 10 through 14. And you just need to see this kind of in this last paragraph. In verse 10 through 14, we see that God cares for, and listen to the emphasis here, God cares for each one of his little ones. Every one. Every individual little one. God loves them. 
And he cares for them. Now, I want you to see where you see that. You see his love for every individual little one in verse 10 through 14. Look at it. Verse 10. Listen to the emphasis here. See that you do not despise. What's the word? One. Don't despise one of these little ones. Not one of them. Then, that's verse 10. And then verse 12, keep going. The next couple verses, he gives a metaphor. And in that metaphor is a shepherd that has his flock and one goes astray. And what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 on the mountains and he goes after the one that went astray. And when he finds it, he rejoices more over the one than over the 99 that never went astray. You see that emphasis on the one, that one individual? And look at it in verse 14. It closes out the same way. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Not one of them should perish. So what do you take away from that? The, the love of God for His people, but the love of God for every individual little one. He loves them. Now we talk about that some with... Um, uh, Galatians 2.20, right? Galatians 2.20 says we live by faith in the Son of God. Or, or Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Y'all heard us talk about that before, right? Galatians 2.20, Paul, yes, Paul believes he loves his bride. He loves his people. But in that verse, he says, he loves me, a little one. And he gave Himself for me. It's this personal thing. And that's what we see here. He loves his little ones. And, and y'all, I would say especially verse 14. Can you just look at that with me again one more time? Look at verse 14. So it is not the will of my father. With, and think about it. With the metaphor of the shepherd going after that lost sheep. With, with the, the metaphor of the shepherd going after the wondering one. With that in the back of your mind, just listen to it. Listen to verse 14. It's beautiful. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Are you a little one? Verse 3, unless, unless you be converted, unless you turn and become like little children, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Have you done that? Have you been converted? Are you a Christian? Are you in Christ? Are you dependent on the Lord Jesus for your salvation? You dropped your self-righteousness? Are you a little one? Are you a child of God? And if you are, if you are a little one, what's the Father's will according to this verse? That you would not perish. It is not, let, let that just sink in for a minute. It is not the Father's will that one of these little ones, if that's you, that not one of these little ones should perish. So little one, how do you know you'll finish the journey? How do you know you'll make it? You'll, you know, you'll, you'll make it to the end. How do you know you'll finish the race? How do you know that? You know that because it's not the Father's will that one of His little ones should perish. That's beautiful. He loves us. Man, He loves us. We love to hear that song. Uh, we love to sing that song and hear that song. He, he will hold me fast, right? Remember why it says it? He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He'll hold me fast. He'll hold me fast. I'll make it to the end. Will not perish. Why? Because He loves me. So I hope you see it. I hope it rejoices your heart. 
God's love for his little ones in this passage. All right, number two. Second thing I want to highlight. Second thing I want to highlight is this. In the church, God's little ones are received and not despised. Now I'm getting that language of received from verse 5 and not despised from verse 10. In the church, God's little ones are received and not despised. Now, like I said earlier, this whole, this whole discourse in Matthew 18 is the church discourse. It has a church focus. It's the second time the word church has been used down in verse 17 in the whole New Testament. So it has a church focus. It's about relationships of Christians in the church and how sin can wreck that. Right? So one thing we know, and I want to highlight it. That in the church, God's little ones are received and not despised. Now, what do I mean by receive? Well, look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives one such child, one such little one in my name receives me. The church is the place where God's little ones are received or welcomed. Accepted. This is about love for one another. This is not just God's love towards his little ones, but the little ones love for one another. Not just God's love for his children, but his children's love for one another. Whoever receives such a child in my name, he says here, receives me. This is about love for the body of Christ. Now we've got a command. It's just like the same word in Romans 15. Verse 7. Now, let me just read that to you. In Romans 15, 7, it says this. Therefore, welcome one another or receive one another. Same word. Welcome one another or receive one another as Christ has welcomed you. So again, this is, this is a call to welcome one another, to receive one another, to receive little ones. Well, what does it mean? Well, the context of Romans 15 helps us. Receive one another into what? Welcome one another into what? Listen to verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. So here at Personal Grace Community Church, may He grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another. Welcome one another into that. Receive one another into that. Into this one voice. Glorifying God. This harmony together according to Christ Jesus. Bringing glory to His name with like mindedness. Welcome each other into that. Receive one another into that. And it says here in Romans 15. Receive one another or welcome one another As Christ welcomed us. That's that's the vertical. As Christ has welcomed us. How's he done that? Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we deserve wrath, when we deserve punishment for God, even then, Christ died for us and loved us and laid down his life. Bend that toward each other. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Take the vertical and bend it out toward each other. 
Receive one another. We're given an example of this in Matthew, earlier in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, same language is used. And then we're given an example. Listen to this. Romans 10, 40 is the same language. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And listen to verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones, same language, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple. Oh man, there's a disciple. There's a little one. I'm just going to give him a cup of cold water. I'm going to serve him. And everybody that does that, he says, he will by no means lose his reward. So this receiving language and the example we're given is receiving into this with one voice glorify God. This receiving into serving each other. Get even just a cup of cold water because he's a disciple. And you won't lose your reward for that. It's service to one another. In our passage in Matthew 18, 5, and it says to do that, to receive one another, to receive such a child in my name, Jesus says, is to receive me. If you receive such a child, if you receive one of my little ones, it's just like you're receiving me. Now that's a beautiful reminder to us of this doctrine of union with Christ. That when you become a little one, when you get saved, you are united to Christ like a branch into the vine. Union with Christ. And you're so united with him that when somebody receives the little one, they're receiving Christ. This is all over the Bible. Remember Acts chapter 9. Paul was persecuting the little ones. He was persecuting the church. Yet Jesus shows up and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're so united to Christ in salvation that, that to persecute the church, someone is persecuting Jesus. You remember at the end of Matthew 25, Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. And the believers go, Jesus, when did we do that? He said, whenever, whenever you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So united to Christ that when, that when you serve a little one, when you serve your brothers and sisters, you're serving Christ. And this is to receive one another. The church is the, is the place where little ones are received, not despised. A way to serve Jesus is to receive or welcome or love the brethren. And, and just this... This is one of the clearest marks of true conversion. Hear me out on this. It's one of the clearest marks of true conversion that you can see is somebody's love for the brethren. 1 John 3.14 This is how you know you pass from death to life. That you love. You love the brethren. So the world... The world despises the people of God. The world despises these little ones for all kinds of different reasons. They got twisted versions of what greatness is, all kinds of reasons. But they despise these little ones, but not in the church. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now again, I mentioned this a little bit more time here. The context... If you're looking at verse 5 through 7, receive these little ones. The context helps you understand even more clearly what it means to receive. Receive such a child. 
Because think about the context here. What is receiving a child contrasted with in verses 5 through 7? Glance at it. What is receiving a child contrasted with in verses 5 through 7? What causing one of them to stumble? If you receive such, if you receive one like this, you receive me. But if you cause one to stumble, but if you trip one up, so think about the imagery there. Every Christian, like we said earlier, every Christian is on this path. Every Christian is on this journey. They're walking this road. They're, they're running this race. And the wicked thing to do is to put a stumbling block there to trip them up. But the loving thing, the beautiful, the glorious thing that happens in the church is receive them and help them finish the journey. Receive them and help them finish the race. Receive them and help them walk the path and never trip. That's the kind of receiving that He's calling them to here in Matthew chapter 18. It's beautiful imagery of the Christian life. And specifically, beautiful imagery of the Christian church. What are we doing? What does it mean to receive one another? What does it mean? Man, we're helping each other make it to the end. That's the language of fellowship from the book of Hebrews. You don't have to flip there, but listen to this. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers. It's a word to the church. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away, to stumble, to trip, to fall away from the living God. But what do we do instead? But exhort one another. This is fellowship. Exhort one another. Every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you hear that language there? Receive each other into what? Into that. To help each other make it to the end so you don't stumble, so you don't fall, so your heart's not hardened. That's fellowship. That's receiving in the church. Chapter 10 Verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another. This is church language. How to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The end of the journey is coming. The day's drawing near and we're helping each other, stirring each other up, helping each other make it to the end. This is the reception that should be happening in the church. Churches where little ones are received and not despised. Now, quick question before we move on from this point. Quick question. How does the how does how do these thoughts affect the way you think about church membership at Grace Community Church? How do these thoughts affect the way you think about church membership at Grace Community Church? And I hope what you would see is it means that for us, church membership is a serious thing. It's not a light thing. It's a serious thing. It's the way that we formally receive people in, receive little ones. It's the way we receive little ones in, but it's not a mere formality. It's not just a formality. It's a receiving in to do Romans 15. One voice glorify God. It's a receiving in to do Hebrews 3. Exhorting one another to make it to the end. To do Hebrews 10. Exhorting one another. The day's coming. Stir each other up. Let's make it. Come on. Let's run the race. Don't fall. Don't stumble. 
Church membership is not just a formality. It's the way we formally receive belief, but it's not just a formality. It's not just your name on a list. It's real devotion to one another, real care for one another, real love for one another. It's real accountability in each other's lives. Church membership is a bunch of little ones helping each other walk the path and finish the race. So just to close out that point, I would I would ask you this question. Is that your experience? So members of Grace Union Church, is that your experience of membership in the local church? Or is it just a name on the list? Is it just show up to the Sunday event? Or is it, man, I'm locked arms with these people and we're fighting to make it to the end together. And I would encourage you to strive for the latter. Third, final point. Final thing I want to highlight out of this passage. Number three is in the church, sin is taken seriously. In the church, sin is taken very seriously. Now, what we see in this passage, I'm going to show it to you, is we see sin taken seriously by the individual. Okay? And we see sin taken seriously corporately by the church corporate, the church as a whole. Now, you see that individually in verse 8 and 9. You've got personal pronouns there, uh, uh, singular pronouns there. If you're singular, I cause you to sin, tear it out. And then when you get to verse 10, this is corporate. Verse 10, you get this plural pronoun. He says, see that you, y'all, plural, see that you, y'all, plural, don't despise one of these little ones. And it gives that metaphor. So you've got singular pronouns and plural. So there's an individual taking sin seriously and there's a corporate taking sin seriously. Let's talk about both of those from this passage. So what is the individual, what should be the individual Christian response to sin? And it's laid out really clearly in verse 8 and 9, right? And if you're just, think about the imagery here. Think about the imagery. Don't let it be too familiar to you. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now think about that progression. Verse 7 said, man, woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. And it's necessary that stumbling blocks are going to be there. But woe to the world. And then it's like in verse 8. He turns to his little ones. He says, but you. But little ones, you. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now why such, why such an extreme threat concerning sin? This is an extreme threat here, Right? He doesn't say if your hand causes you to sin, uh, cut it off because it might make you an immature Christian. That would be a threat. I don't want to be an immature Christian. You don't want to be an immature Christian. That would be a threat or a warning. I'd be a better word. But it's more severe than that. He doesn't say, hey, deal with sin because you might be immature. He doesn't say deal with sin because you might live an unfulfilled life. 
None of that is strong enough. What he says is you better deal with sin or you're going to go to hell. Why such a severe threat here? If your hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it off, pluck it off. Why? Because it's better for you to go to life, go into life, maimed, than to go to hell with two hands. Or to go to hell with two eyes. Why this severe warning here? Such a severe warning that he gives to his little ones. And I think the reason why is because that's exactly, listen to me, that's exactly what sin's goal is in your life. Sin's aim, sin's goal in your life, Genesis 4, 7 says this, sin is crouching at the door, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. It wants to rule over you, and it wants to drag you to hell forever. Why the severe warning? Because sin's aim is not just to make you immature. It's to drag you to hell. Hell is a real place. Right here in our passage, it calls it eternal fire. And then it calls it the hell of fire. Let that sink in for a moment. That the punishment, the punishment for sin is torture and torment day and night forever and ever. It never ends. The eternality of hell is the scariest thing you've ever thought of. Punishment that goes on and on and you never get relief. And sin wants to drag you there. It wants to leave you there. And so Jesus to his little ones, he he warns them with warnings of hell. Sin's a dangerous thing. And therefore, it ought not to be played around with, which is why it's dangerous, which is why he gives such a radical call to deal with. Think about the the gruesome imagery that he's given a hand sliced off and not only that thrown in the trash. He's given imagery and and I don't, you know, don't let it go. Don't let it be numb to you. Of an eyeball being torn out of your face and thrown into the garbage somewhere. And this radical imagery is that's how you deal with sin. Don't you know it wants to drag you to hell? This passage tells us that amputation is better than damnation. This passage does not allow us to deal lightly or casually with sin. So-called Christians who make peace with sin are in danger of hellfire. That's what this passage teaches. I'd be willing to bet. I hope this warning from Jesus is alarming to us, right? Because I'm willing to bet that there's all across the room that there that you have felt tempted to deal lightly with your sin. Maybe you feel that even now. Or or maybe even felt tempted to make peace with it. Just make peace with your sin. And listen, this warning right here, the severity of this warning, how how does the church deal with sin? Man, seriously. So individual Christian, listen to me. Take it seriously. Be alarmed by what Jesus is saying right here. It's very serious. And what about the corporate? What about corporate dealings with sin? Like I said in verse 10, we get a plural pronoun here as it switches. See that you, 
plural. Y'all, church, do not despise one of these little ones. And so what you get is a command. Don't despise the little ones. Then you get, like I said earlier, the metaphor. He says, what do you think? That's meant to wake you up. Listen, what do you think? A shepherd's got this flock and one of them wanders off. Does he not lead the 99 to go after the wandering one? To go after the straying sheep and when he finds it, he rejoices over it. So you get, you get a command, don't despise them. Then you get the metaphor about the wandering sheep from the body of Christ. And then right there at the end, you get this application that the father, it's not his will that even one of his little ones would perish. So what we're called to do is to imitate the good shepherd here. We're called to imitate the good shepherd here. We're we're called to have a love for each one. Here's the hundred in the flock. One's gone. There's 99. 99% are stayed. 99% uh, are still there. And we're being called here to a love as a church corporately for each one. Don't despise that one of these little ones. Shepherd metaphor. Okay? So I want you to think about that for a minute. What does that mean for you as a member of Grace Community Church? What would that mean for you as a member of Grace Community Church? It means, brothers and sisters, be the kind of church member that loves each one. Be the kind of church member that loves each one. That knows as best you can. And we have limitations. We're not God. But as best you can, you know when sheep are straying from the flock and you care enough to go after them. Be the kind of church member that cares and loves, has a care and a love for each one. Don't just have your name on a roll as a church member, right? That's, that's, the, that's the worldly view. You know, uh, join this little club. Uh, pay my dues and reap the benefits rather than I join this church because there's res- I take on responsibilities in that. So don't just have your name on the list. Don't be an unaware church member. That usually happens because there's so much self-focus. Just focus on me, 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 me that I'm just unaware of the body of Christ around me, the people around me. And when somebody's hurting or someone goes astray, I'm unaware of it. I don't even know. And be the kind of church member that has a love and a care for each one. Don't be the church member that's just content with the 99%. Well, it looks fine. 99% are still here. Everything's good. Not my responsibility. They're gone. They probably don't want me to talk to them anyways. 99% here. That's, that's somebody that would just, they're content with showing up at a meeting like this and going, hey, it looks like a bit of people are here. We're good. Rather than actually loving the people in the church and caring for their souls in such a way that when they stray, you want to go after them. Be that kind of church member. The modern day church, it's just a place where you show up to the weekly event. That's kind of modern day mindset of the church. Just show up to the, the weekly event. Uh, no real responsibility. No real care for other people. No real practical love for one another. But biblically speaking, and you you guys know this, the church is a people that are committed to one another. The language we've used is covenanted together. 
Acts 2.42, that, that's first, that church there in Jerusalem, it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That word is literally the partnership. They were locked arms together. Devoted, devoted to one another. And what are they doing? They're, they're holding each other up. They're helping each other make it to the end. That's a biblical view of the local church. And I want us to strive for that. So quickly, here just at the end. Um, what, what keeps a church and members of a church from faithfully living this out? From, from, from loving each other in such a way that you're not the unaware church member, you're not, you're not the one just content with I now, but you love each one. There's this care for the individuals of the church in such a way that when they go astray, you want to go after them. What, what keeps a church from doing that? What keeps, what stops members of a church from living that out faithfully? And just in closing, I'll mention four sins that tend to keep us from living this out faithfully. Number one, would just be a general lack of love. Just a general lack of love. I want you to compare something real quick. And if you've never seen this before, I hope it's helpful to you. In James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. This is the way James ends his letter. And listen to what he says. My brothers, if anyone among you Wonders from the truth, and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Now, does that last phrase sound familiar to you? Cover what covers a multitude of sin? It's interesting. Proverbs 10, 12 says love covers a multitude of sin. 1 Peter 4, 8 says love covers a multitude of sin. What does this say covers a multitude of sin? When your brother goes astray, when he's gone, that you go after him. And when you go after your brother, if you bring one back from wandering, you've covered a multitude of sins. Now, I'm not a math genius, but just putting the equation together, right? Love covers a multitude of sin. Bringing back a brother from wandering covers a multitude of sin. So bringing, again, not, not a genius here, but bringing back a brother from wandering is love. Isn't it interesting that in our passage in Matthew 18, it calls it the opposite of love to not do it. Don't despise one of these little ones. How could you despise them? Well, one goes astray and you're just content with a 99, not even going after them. Love them. So I think one thing that can stop us is a general lack of love. Let's ask God to make us a people that love each other deeply. Deeply. Number two, a sin that can keep us from living this out would be a neglect of responsibility. Just a neglect of responsibility. To be a church member means, biblically, the very nature of being a church member is it means that you have a responsibility. Now, so often church relationships are just treated kind of like a take it or leave it thing. You know, like, oh, you know, if we click, we click. If we don't click, no problem. It's just kind of a take it or leave it, leave it thing. But does that, would that ever work in a family? Would that ever work in a family? So, so imagine, you know, if one of my children came to me, said, 
you know, Dad, my sister, we just ain't clicking. So uh, I ain't gonna worry about that. You know, what do you what do you say to that? You go, I don't care if it's clicking or not. Your brother and sister, the very nature of what you are, you gotta make it click. You gotta love each other. There's a responsibility involved in being a family that doesn't allow you to treat it like it's take it or leave it. Hope it works out if we click it, okay. If not, then no problem. You can't do that. Well, the the church is a family of people, a family of God's children. There's a responsibility. It's not just take it or leave it. When you become a member of a church, you take on a responsibility for these people. So brothers and sisters, don't neglect this. Don't neglect this responsibility. If people from the outside looking in will look at your life, when they look at your life as a member of the church and say, man, that person feels the weight of their responsibility for these people. They feel the weight of their responsibility for these people. And I encourage you, if that, um, if that strikes you in any kind of way, then, then strive to, to remedy the problem and to love each other in a way that you feel the responsibility for these people. That's what church membership is. Number three, third sin that can keep us from this is the fear of man. And the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. Y'all, the fear of man is a trap. It's a snare. You'll get trapped if you have the fear of man. Because here's the reality. This is just the reality. There will be times, and there have been times, and praise God for this, where a sheep goes astray, someone wanders off, and brothers and sisters that love them go after them. And as they go after them in love and care, they are used as a means of God's grace to bring them back. Praise God. But here's another reality. Sometimes you do that and people hate you for it. Somebody wanders off and, and, and you go after them and they don't want you to go after them. They don't want you to talk to them. They, they will hate you for it. And here's what happens. The potential, remember the fear of man is a snare. The potential of, oh no, somebody might not be pleased with me if I go after them when they're wondering. Somebody might not like it. They might not respond well. They might hate me for it. That so often keeps people from loving others. And I want to encourage you not to have a fear of man. I want to encourage you to love their souls more than you love their approval. Love their souls more than you love their approval. And last one, number four. A sin that can keep us from living this out. It's just a general self-centeredness. And this really brings it back full circle, right? Because we talked about in Matthew 18, verse 1 through 4, how uh, self-centeredness is the opposite of humility, right? Uh, a self-focused, a self-centeredness. Now, it can look like I'm thinking about me a lot because I'm so great. Or it can look like I'm thinking about me a lot because I'm so bad. Either way, you're thinking about me a lot, right? And it's pride. And it's arrogance. And the opposite of that is humility. It's a self-forgetfulness. Well, listen to me. A self-centeredness blinds us. We're focused on ourselves and we can't see other things around us. We can't see other needs, other pain, other hurt, other people going to strike. We can't see it because we're just thinking about ourselves. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Always consider others better than yourself. True humility is a self-forgetfulness. It's thoughts wrapped up in God and wrapped up in the little ones. 
And that should be our prayer. Lord, help us to be a self-forgetful people who love each other and faithfully pursue those who are wondering. We need to imitate the good shepherd here. So the good shepherd, you think about the good shepherd, Jesus. He came in this world. Not because one, not one human soul from Adam till now, not one single human soul deserved it. In fact, every single human soul deserved the opposite. They deserve Christ to never come to this world, to never come to rescue. Deserve hell forever. You, me and the whole world did not deserve it. And yet Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he laid down his life. He died for sinners. He took the wrath of God in our place. He loved us. He gave himself for us. And now when you're a little one, he says he's not willing that any should perish. He's not willing that any should perish. And that kind of love for his people, for his little ones, for his church. Man, that's what we need to imitate. And I believe this passage calls us to imitate that. I pray you'll take this passage and read over it by yourself somewhere in a secret place. Open Bible, reading the passage, thinking about these points and really asking God to help you as an individual, as a member of Grace Community Church and help us as a church to live these things out for the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much that we can come to You and Lord, we praise you for what you reveal yourself to be in this passage of Scripture. You are the good shepherd. And we praise you, God, that you, you do go after the wandering ones, the straying ones, and that you love us, Lord, and that you said that you're not willing that one of your little ones should perish. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you, God, that all around this room you brought so many into your family. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church to receive one another, to welcome one another, to serve one another. Help us with one voice to glorify your name. God, help us to to not put stumbling blocks in front of each other, but to help each other run and to finish the race. And God, I pray that you would give us a deep, deep love and a deep, deep care that causes us to even go after those that wonder. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.